Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode. I have a few notes about the show before we start. This is an independent ad-free podcast, which means I depend on the listeners to help grow and support it. And there are a number of ways that you can help. You can follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can leave a decent rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to your shows on. You can recommend us in true crime fan groups, or you can just tell a friend. And if you somehow listen to every single episode and are looking for more content, you can become a Patreon subscriber. For as little as $1 a month, you'll have access to dozens of full-length bonus episodes that you won't hear anywhere else. Every patron gets to listen, no matter what tier you join. But if a subscription isn't your thing and you would still like to help keep the lights on and the treat jars full, you can make a one-time donation through PayPal using the email californiapod at gmail.com. This week, I'd like to thank Lynn N., Natasha, Lynette N., Tina E., Ank K., Mary R., Johnny A., Melinda W., Jocelyn H., Kate S., Linda M., B. C., Diane, Thomas O., and Beth C. for either joining Patreon, raising their pledge, or making a one-time donation. Okay, that's all I have for now, so let's get to today's show. The word Khmer, K-H-M-E-R, refers to the Aboriginal people of the Southeast Asian country of Cambodia, which lies nestled between Thailand to the west, Laos to the north, and Vietnam to the east. The Gulf of Thailand makes up part of the country's southernmost border. In 1975, the country's government fell to communism, the Khmer Rouge as it's called, led by the party's general secretary, Pol Pot. Pol Pot wanted a completely self-sufficient agrarian socialist country, and in doing so, he ordered the killing of all educated, intellectual, and professional Cambodian citizens, resulting in the capture, torture, and deaths of somewhere between 1.5 to 2 million people across four years, spanning from 1975 to 1979. That was close to one-fourth of the entire population of Cambodia. People were taken prisoner. They were brought to what have been referred to as the killing fields. They were mostly killed with pickaxes in order to not have to use up any ammunition, and then they were buried in mass graves. Approximately 60% of the genocide victims met with this fate, while the other approximately 40% died of disease, starvation, or exhaustion. The genocide ended when the Vietnamese military invaded Cambodia in 1978 and brought down the Khmer Rouge communist regime. The Cambodian genocide also set off a massive flow of refugees, mostly into Thailand, but also into Vietnam. One of those refugees and a survivor of the genocide was a man named Dith Pran, born September 23, 1942, in the city of Angkor Wat. His father was an official with the Department of Public Works. And while going to school, one of the things that Dith primarily focused on was learning languages. In addition to speaking his native Cambodian, he also learned French and would go on to learn English on his own. Cambodia has a long history with France, starting in 1863, 
which ended up having a significant influence on the Cambodian language and culture, along with other Southeast Asian countries, including Vietnam, Laos, and various Chinese territories. Dith eventually got a job with the United States Army as a translator, and later on, he worked as a member of a British film crew in the making of a 1965 movie called Lord Jim. In 1975, as the Khmer Rouge toppled the Cambodian capital of Phnom Penh, Dith, along with a New York Times journalist named Cindy Schoenberg, stayed behind in order to provide media coverage of the capital's fall. And while all foreign members of the press were free to leave Cambodia, Dith would have been forced to stay if he tried to flee. Because he was considered an intellectual, Dith would have been marked for execution. So he hid his identity and the fact that he was educated and that he ever worked for the American government. But he was imprisoned nonetheless and endured several years of torture and starvation as his captors tried to get to the truth as to his background, education, and profession. After Vietnam invaded Cambodia and overthrew the Khmer Rouge, he was actually assigned as the village chief in the city of Siem Reap. But because of the United States' involvement in the Vietnam War, Dith was afraid that if the Vietnamese found out that he had once worked for the American government, he would be executed. So he fled to Thailand in October of 1979. Once New York Times reporter Sidney Schamberg found out that Dith survived and made it to Thailand, he flew there to have a very joyous reunion with him. They had forged a friendship during their time covering the Khmer Rouge takeover of Phnom Penh. Sidney ended up bringing Dith back with him to the United States and Dith was given a job as a photojournalist with the New York Times. Dith's life story would end up being told in the 1984 film, The Killing Fields. Killing Fields is a term Dith coined himself in referring to the thousands of skeletal and human remains he encountered as he made the 40 mile or 60 kilometer journey by foot to the Thai border. The critically acclaimed film was nominated for seven Academy Awards, winning three of them for Best Supporting Actor, Best Cinematography, and Best Film Editing. It was also nominated for six Golden Globes, winning one again for Best Supporting Actor. Dith became an American citizen in 1986. He married twice but had no children. In early 2008, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and would quickly succumb to the disease three months later on March 30th, 2008 at the age of 65. The award-winning actor who portrayed Dith Pran and the one who took home the 1985 Golden Globe and Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor was Hang Noir. And he actually wasn't an actor when he took on that role. He was just that good at his portrayal because he lived through the Cambodian genocide as well. His role as Dith in The Killing Fields was Hang's acting debut. And not only was Hang a critically acclaimed actor, he was also a doctor. And today I'm going to tell you about the journey Dr. Hang Noir made from the real killing fields of Cambodia to the film, and how his life ironically came to an end. 
In this 249th episode of California Dreaming, the tale of surviving genocide and dying on the streets of L.A. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. The five actors we're about to celebrate have each taken a different path on their journey here this evening. I know that none of them think of this evening as their final goal. The final goal, if any, lies within the work and in a private sense of challenge and achievement. To be chosen as the best for a piece of work is a welcome prize. To know that you've done it in a way that's best for you is every bit as sweet. The best performance by an actor in a supporting role. Adolf Caesar in a soldier's story. John Malkovich in Places in the Park. Noriyuki Pat Morita in The Karate Kid. Hang S. Noor in The Killing Fields. Ralph Richardson in Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes. My deepest congratulations to the four gentlemen with us tonight. God's blessing be with Sir Ralph Richardson. The winner is... Hang S. Noor in the Killing Unbelievable, but so is my entire life. I wish to thank all members of Motion Picture Academy for this great honor. I thank David Putnam, Ron Chofi, for giving me this chance to act for the first time in the killing fields. And I share this award to my friend Simon Stone, Dick Brown, Sri Schumer, and also Pat Gordon, director casting lady, who found me for this role. <laughs> for helping me tell my story to the world, let the world know what happened in my country. And I thank God 
Buddha, that tonight I'm even here. Thank you very much. Thank you. By 1985, Dr. Hang Noir was living a comfortable life in Los Angeles, California with his niece, Sophia, who he adopted and had been raising since she was nine years old following the death of both of her parents to the Cambodian genocide, an event that Hang also lost his wife in as well. So they were basically everything to each other, Hang and Sophia, all they had left of the family they'd once had. Hang had just won both a Golden Globe and an Academy Award for his role in The Killing Fields, which tells the tale of that genocide that they had lost their family in, the genocide that they survived. It was an incredibly proud moment for Hang and Sophia, but also for all of those who lived through the atrocities carried out by the Khmer Rouge regime, for all of Cambodia and the Asian community as a whole. Hang was the very first, and to this day, the only person of Asian descent to win an Oscar in the category of Best Supporting Actor. And it is somewhat of a fluke that Hang even made his way onto the silver screen in the first place. The thing was, as you can imagine, Hang was not an actor, at least not in the traditional sense. He didn't go to film school, he didn't take acting classes. He actually, for a time, was forced to put on an act in order to survive. And maybe he was a natural fit for the role because like Dithpran, the person that he was portraying, Hang survived being tortured by his captors. The genocide began following the fall of the Cambodian capital to the Khmer Rouge, and their leader Pol Pot called for the mass killing of all of those who were educated, intellectuals, and professionals. Prior to the takeover, Hang was a doctor in OBGYN in Cambodia, so he was definitely someone the Khmer Rouge would have wanted executed. In order to avoid being killed, he had to take steps to conceal his true identity. Hang did so by masquerading as an illiterate cab driver. And it would not only be Hang's life that would be at risk, but also the lives of anyone in his family, including children. Though if there were children who were orphaned but not executed, they would be abducted, indoctrinated, and then ordered to carry out some of the atrocities at the behest of the communist leaders. But Hang was never really safe from the regime. He always had to be watching his back because on three different occasions he was picked up, imprisoned, and systematically tortured in an effort to force him to reveal his true identity and his profession. He would be restrained, tied up, beaten, tortured, and just brutally interrogated to try to get him to admit to who he was. But Hang never gave in. Somehow, he survived, but his family didn't make it. He eventually decided that the only way he was going to make it out of Cambodia alive was to flee. After his wife and Sophia's parents were killed, 
he knew that he had to get himself and his niece out of there because eventually their luck would run out. The two of them eventually managed to make their way to the Cambodian Thai border. There were two distinct symbols that they finally saw when they knew that that meant that they were going to be okay. And those would be the Red Cross and the flag of the United States of America. When Hang saw those two things, he embraced Sophia and he assured her that they would be safe. Eventually, Hang and Sophia immigrated to the United States together and settled in Los Angeles, California, and focused on looking towards a better future for themselves. The thoughts of what they endured to get there and the family that they lost were never far. But they were very, very grateful and happy for the second chance at life and being able to do so and have this freedom in America. Hang found a job as a social worker within the county and he launched a foundation dedicated to raising money for other refugees as well as the children of Cambodia who were left orphaned because of the genocide. It was in 1983 when the movie The Killing Fields was in the works and Hang just kind of on a whim decided to go for it and he auditioned for the role since it was based on something that was so close to home for him. When the casting director met Hang, he felt like he connected so well to the whole subject and essence of the film that Hang was offered a co-starring role alongside Sam Watterson and John Malkovich. And clearly, the casting director was right. Hang was just perfect for the role, and Hang felt like the same way. It was an honor and very important for him to be able to show the whole world what had happened to him and his people at the hands of the Khmer Rouge, what it was like in Cambodia for millions of its citizens. But for Hang to go on to win numerous awards for his portrayal of Death Pran was only the icing on the cake, and it was the confirmation for him that the American dream was indeed a very real and tangible thing, and it was happening for him in spades. Hang went from being tortured and nearly starved to death by the Khmer Rouge to winning an Academy Award for being a part of the telling of that very story within the film. Hang received his Oscar at the 57th Academy Awards, which was held on March 25, 1985. The movie that dominated the awards that year was Amadeus. And here's kind of a fun fact. I was looking around at all of the awards from that year and Amadeus had been nominated for several of them, like lots of awards. But the Los Angeles Film Critics Awards was the only one to nominate Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart for Best Musical Score, posthumously, of course. But he came up as the runner up to the score of Once Upon a Time in America. But anyway, nearly 11 years later, Dr. Hang Noir would meet a tragic fate. Right there in the City of Angels, the place where he had thought he had found peace, safety, and freedom. On February 25, 1996, Dr. Hang Noir was found dead in an alleyway near his home in the Chinatown area of downtown Los Angeles. He was laying next to his car, 
Hang had been shot twice, once in the chest and once in the leg. Later on, it would be determined that both of those shots entered his body in what was described as a downward trajectory. Based on that and the way that Hang was found, it seemed as though he was sitting in his car when whoever approached him shot him from a standing position outside the vehicle. It appeared as if Hang was just getting home and he had just parked his car, but he didn't even have a chance to get out of it before he was approached by his assailant and shot to death. The detective in charge of the investigation into Hang's murder was John Garcia. When he arrived at the scene, what he normally did was take a few minutes to look at the body of the victim as they are found, and he just looks at them and thinks about how it was that person came to be that way. What was it that happened? Because it was just a second before that that they were in the last moments of their life. Detective Garcia tries to take it all in before he moves on. It's kind of a cerebral sort of a way to approach things before he moves on to the next stages of his investigation. By that time, a crowd had gathered around the area where Hang had been gunned down and the crowd included the local media. As crime scene analysts arrived to gather evidence, they too wanted to try and figure out the how and the why of this seemingly senseless crime. After all, Dr. Hang Noir seemed like an unlikely target for a crime such as this, to be randomly shot on the street. He was an upstanding member of the community, a humanitarian, a doctor, an award-winning actor, and the why this happened was just as mysterious as the who. The investigators found two 9mm shell casings on the ground. One was next to the car and the other had rolled underneath it. But there was something even more interesting that was found inside Hang's vehicle. In the pocket of his jacket, which was draped across the back seat, was close to $3,000 in cash. So this was a pretty big indicator that the motive for this killing may not have been robbery. So if there was another reason for this, what could it possibly be? Other than the shell casings and the cash that wasn't taken, there was very little in the way of evidence to lend to the motive behind Dr. Hang Noir's murder. The investigators checked the areas in the alleyway nearby for any fingerprints or possibly even the murder weapon. But the alley was what you might expect in an alley in downtown Los Angeles to look like. There were trash cans, dumpsters, graffiti, carports, and it was probably pretty gross too. But after thoroughly going through the alley, nothing of any kind of evidentiary value was uncovered. So they started speaking to people nearby, shop owners, residents, anyone who may have heard or seen anything unusual. And it was while this was going on that Hang's niece, Sophia, learned of her uncle's murder. And with his loss, that meant Sophia was completely alone. At that time in her life, her uncle was still the only relative that she had. He was the one who had finished raising her when her mother and father were killed in the genocide. And now he was gone too, 
taken away as violently as her parents were. But instead, it happened here in the United States, the place where they thought they had found sanctuary. Sophia described it as being orphaned for a second time, while most others only suffer that fate once in a lifetime. Sophia was interviewed by police, and they came to learn that Dr. Hang Noir, according to her, had enemies that were quite powerful, and she believed that it was those enemies who would have had the motive to want him dead, and they certainly had the means to make it happen. You know, Hang was interested in becoming a part of the Killing Fields film project because it was a chance to put what the Cambodian communist regime did on display for the world to see. And for him, the best part of it all was the notoriety that he gained when his portrayal of Death Pran was critically acclaimed and he won him numerous film awards, including the Golden Globe and the Oscar. Hang was using that fame as a platform to speak out about the atrocities that were carried out against the Cambodians by the Khmer Rouge. And he had made it his personal pursuit to make sure that everyone knew who was responsible in the hopes that one day they would be made to answer to their crimes against humanity. Any chance Hang had, any time he was offered a platform to speak, he took it. He told anyone who would listen about these atrocities beyond what the movie touched on, which was just a microcosm of what was happening in terms of the egregious human rights violations that were being perpetrated by the Khmer Rouge. It was important to Hang for the world to understand that even though the Cambodian Civil War was over, that his people were still fighting for their lives. And there was a measure of fear when it came to Hang being so vocal and publicly condemning the Khmer Rouge that it could be very dangerous for him to speak out so aggressively against the communist leader Pol Pot. Even though by 1996, Following the fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of the Cold War, and the end of communism in Russia, Pol Pot was rapidly losing power in Cambodia, and he was growing old and frail. Despite that, he still had legions of supporters and sympathizers. Pol Pot ended up dying while under house arrest of heart failure in 1998 at the age of 72. Even so, people tried to warn Hang that it was not safe for him to be so public about Pol Pot and his regime. But Hang deeply believed that it was his duty to continue to advocate for those who suffered and continue to suffer because of the atrocities Pol Pot was responsible for. He would not allow anyone to silence him. Even his niece Sophia was afraid for his safety because of him being such a public figure speaking so openly about Cambodia. He had a great deal of influence and a very large platform, and it made him vulnerable, but Hang insisted that he needed to be the voice of those who no longer had one. He had this beautiful opportunity in America to give back, and he would not let it be squandered or taken away from him. He survived the Cambodian genocide for a reason, and standing up for the weak and suffering was a huge part of that. Like I said, the Khmer Rouge still had a very significant presence, so Sophia worried. This was a potential motive and an angle for investigators to explore. 
Were politics involved in Hang's death? Was this a political assassination? In addition to Hang being such a prominent figure in the Cambodian community, it was also looking like this may have very well been a political contract hit. Whoever did this did it late in the evening. There weren't any witnesses to be found. Hang was alone. His money wasn't stolen. It had all the earmarks of this being carried out by a professional assassin. They go in for the kill and then they vanish, leaving little to no evidence or trace of themselves behind. And because of Hang's fame and him having won an Academy Award and the fact that this was an international story, his murder was splashed across the media and the headlines. So there was a great deal of pressure placed on the detectives assigned to this case to find the person or persons responsible for Hang's murder. And the LAPD is very familiar with having to deal with high-profile cases, the media, and public pressure and scrutiny, especially if they don't get somebody into custody right away. And at the beginning of this, investigators really didn't have any answers. But... If there is anything that we've learned recently from the events unfolding in the high-profile case that we're currently following, the murders of those four University of Idaho students, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It doesn't mean that the police don't have leads if you're not hearing about it in the media. They might have a suspect, they might not, but if they do, they have to be somewhat hush-hush it's understandable that the public has questions and are demanding of answers. But there's always stuff going on in the background that we're just not privy to, and we shouldn't be. So that being said, it seemed in the days and weeks following Hang's murder, investigators really truly didn't have much to go on, and they weren't hiding that fact. They didn't have anything to tell to the media, even if they did have anything solid. So... The fear within the Cambodian-American community grew with each passing day, and the community was hit particularly hard with the fact that someone so beloved and admired, who spoke so passionately for them, was killed. His loss was a tremendous blow. He had worked so hard in advocating for them. It left a void that would be very difficult, if not impossible, to fill. Hank's murder was a very shocking thing that happened within the Cambodian community in and around the greater Los Angeles area, but it was just as shocking for those who were still living in Cambodia as well. And as much as it was important for them for Hank's case to be solved and the people responsible for his murder to be brought to justice, law enforcement did have somewhat of a difficult time connecting with the Cambodian community building trust and developing a rapport. And it was something that the detectives on the case really didn't expect. When dealing with people from different countries, it's important to have a deeper understanding of their cultures. And the fact was in Cambodia, if you were a member of law enforcement, then you were considered the enemy. They do not trust the police because the police in Cambodia are politically connected and they're corrupt. And another reason for concern involved the nature of Hang's murder. They did not know if it was just a random act of violence, just a regular run-of-the-mill street crime, or if his killing was in fact politically motivated. 
because if it was the latter, if politics were involved, if the Khmer Rouge sympathizers were behind the killing, then nobody in the Cambodian community wanted to be caught dead cooperating with law enforcement. The problem is, when someone becomes a target by a political leader or a dictator, as it were, he, and it's usually a he, won't just want to assassinate you. He'll want to assassinate everyone in your family. And the reasoning behind that is because if you take someone out and you leave their children behind, when they get older, their children will become the threat. And for this reason, Hang's niece had to make herself scarce too because whoever killed him might come after her as well. This case became even more complicated as the investigation went along when they went to speak to the last person known to have seen or interacted with Hang before he was killed. And this person was not only a very good friend of Hang's, but also a cousin, and his name was Tommy Nguyen. They had met for dinner in the city of Long Beach. When they were finished, Hang drove to his home, located in the Chinatown district of Los Angeles. It was when he arrived home and parked his car that he was shot to death. But when investigators tried talking to Tommy, they had a hard time communicating with him because his command of the English language was very, very minimal. So they weren't able to get a great deal of anything useful out of him. That, along with the complicated relationship that the Cambodian community had with law enforcement, it led detectives to decide that they were going to have to find someone to help the process along by bridging the gap between them and the Cambodians. They needed to somehow gain the trust and the cooperation of the Cambodian Americans in order to even hope to have a decent chance at solving this murder. And really, that goes for any community. So they found a guy who grew up in Chinatown and knew many people in the neighborhood, and that would be LAPD officer Ed Yee. And he was to be a liaison between the police and the Cambodian American community. So in tandem with the detectives on the case, Officer Ed Yee did a neighborhood canvas. He went knocking on doors and he was speaking to the residents in and around the area where the shooting took place. And about half the people were familiar with or acquainted with Ed. They were mostly people who had gone to school with him or they were the parents of some of the kids who had been classmates with him. So it was much easier for them to want to talk to Ed as opposed to other officers with different backgrounds and ethnicities since they inherently trusted him and felt comfortable speaking to him despite the fact that he too was a member of law enforcement. Meanwhile, as Ed is speaking to the neighbors, Investigators conducted a search of Hang's home to see if there was anything that could be found amongst his things to indicate what may have been the motive for this killing. They particularly wanted to know if there was anything to point to this having been politically motivated. So investigators obtained a search warrant and what they found, what they discovered was kind of an interesting side to Dr. Hang Noir. So amongst Hang's personal belongings and his personal effects, he had 
apparently some women's intimate garments, undergarments, when they asked Sophia if they belonged to her, she said that those items were not hers. Well, investigators soon discovered that Hang actually had a pretty active social life when it came to the ladies. He was dating several women, and you know, he's pretty famous. He's a guy that's in the movies, an Oscar winner, you know, he was quite a catch. And shortly after he was killed, a number of women started coming out of the woodwork in order to try and make a claim to his estate. One woman even showed up with a marriage license from the state of Nevada, allegedly proving that she was legally married to the guy. According to Sophia, her uncle was not married, that he was never married to anyone in America, and he never really brought any women around, and that anyone who was coming around claiming to be married to him was a fraud. Now this is where things get even more complicated in this case. Even though Hang was an Academy Award-winning actor, he wasn't rich compared to the average Oscar-winning actor. The Killing Fields was Hang's acting debut. I mean, nobody could have imagined that his role would go on to be one of the most critically acclaimed performances the year that that movie was released. So you know, Hang was not paid what you might think an A-list actor would have been paid, not even close. So now that investigators were starting to put it together that Hang was kind of a ladies' man and he was sort of going around as if he was wealthy and famous because he had that Oscar and that Golden Globe to prove it, it kind of had the police and detectives wondering if it was one of those women who may have gotten upset about something that he did or was angered that he was seeing several other women at the same time, or perhaps one of the women wanted him dead in order to try and make a claim on his assets, or this could have been along the lines of that initial theory of Hank's killing being a political assassination and one of the women that he was seeing was in some way connected to the Khmer Rouge and somehow set him up. Over the course of the next several weeks, investigators kept working on Hank's case and they chased down all of those theories and those leads and those rumors, but they were unable to find anything or anyone to connect anybody to the killing. They couldn't figure out why Hang had that $3,000 with him in the car. They couldn't make that connection that they were looking for with the Khmer Rouge. They couldn't really find any actual financial reasons or motivations behind this killing. And they didn't find anyone who stood to benefit any significant amount of money as a result of his death. And the lead detective, Garcia, he was working nearly around the clock to try and solve this mystery. But it was actually when Detective Garcia was having a conversation on the phone with Hang's niece, Sophia, that led the investigation into a different direction. It was getting close to two months since Hang was killed when they were talking and Sophia asked Detective Garcia if he was ever able to find a couple of pieces of jewelry that her uncle always wore that were missing. A Rolex wristwatch and a necklace with a locket on it. 
Detective Garcia had no idea what Sofia was talking about. This was the first he had heard about any valuables being missing from the crime scene. All this time, Detective Garcia had really been working at trying to make that political connection between Hang's murder and the Khmer Rouge. And now, here, he had Sophia telling him that her uncle had these two valuable pieces of jewelry that he had purchased as special mementos for himself. He had a Rolex, and that along with the gold chain and a locket were the two things that he wore everywhere that he went, and the locket was something that he never took off. So with this revelation, Detective Garcia went back to the cousin that Hang had shared dinner with down in Long Beach right before he was gunned down, Tommy New, along with his own liaison, Officer Ed Yee. They wanted to talk to him to see if he had some more information about these pieces of jewelry. And in speaking to Tommy, they discovered that some pictures of them were taken at that dinner get-together. And when the detective had a chance to look at those photos, it was clear that that Rolex was indeed on Hang's wrist. So this brought them back to the possibility that this murder was a robbery, a theory that they had dismissed early on because of the cash that wasn't taken. But you know that the money was in a jacket pocket that was draped across the back seat. If this was a robbery, then they could have missed it or they didn't stick around long enough to rifle through the contents of the vehicle. So Detective Garcia put the political assassination theory on the back burner and refocused on this being a robbery. And you know, if this was a random street crime, a crime of opportunity of sorts, it seemed like it was somewhat unnecessary for the people who carried out this crime to shoot and kill the victim. You don't have to kill somebody in order to snatch a gold watch and gold chain. But Hang could have resisted. The people who did this crime may have been somewhat inexperienced. The gunman could have panicked if Hang said or did something that startled him and he just started pulling the trigger. But based on the evidence, it appeared as though the person or persons who did this didn't even give Hang a chance to get out of his car. It looked like they shot him while he was still seated in his vehicle. Hang either fell out or was pulled out, and that's when the gunman took the watch and chain off of his body and fled. But it still doesn't rule out the notion that this may have been a political assassination, and the assassin took the jewelry as an afterthought. But whatever the case was, Detective Garcia started to look at this as being a robbery gone bad. They began canvassing all of the jewelry stores and the pawn shops in Chinatown to see if they would be able to track down the locket and the Rolex watch, but they were unable to find either item. They weren't going to be deterred, however. Detective Garcia was familiar with the fact that purse snatching and jewelry snatching was something that the gang members in the area commonly did. And so what they did next was they went back to the alleyway where Hang was killed and the investigators took a look at all of the graffiti that was on the walls and all the dumpsters that were nearby. In doing so, they could see which gangs were tagging in that location, which is something that is done to sort of signify that 
this specific area, this alleyway, is their territory. And in the alley, there was graffiti all over everything. Utility poles, trash dumpsters, on the sides of buildings and apartments and businesses, walls, carports. It was clear that there was gang activity going on in this area and it was quite prolific. And in the areas surrounding the crime scene, the tag that appeared most frequently were the letters OLB. Law enforcement knew that the predominant street gang that are active in that area and had a stronghold on the neighborhood was a Cambodian gang called the Oriental Lazy Boys. They were founded sometime in the early 1980s and in the beginning they had maybe three dozen members or so but over the years they were able to grow their membership into the hundreds. And the main thing that the members of the OLB did were things like to make quick money. They sold drugs, they committed robberies, and as mentioned already, they did purse and jewelry snatches. So for the most part, this particular gang was relatively nonviolent. They didn't murder people. Most of the stuff that they were involved in was relatively petty. So investigators needed to figure out if Hang was killed by gang members, why was it they chose to resort to murder? The most significant piece of jewelry was the most unique, and that was the locket. It was heart-shaped, and it displayed a picture of Hang's wife. Her name was Hoi, and she was killed during the genocide. Back in the 1970s, while Hang was masquerading as an illiterate cab driver, Hoi was also hiding her true identity as well. At the time, she was pregnant with her and Hang's first child. And when she went into labor and was getting ready to give birth, she had a number of complications which caused them to become more vulnerable to actually being found out as to who they were and Hang's true identity. She had gone into labor prematurely. And now they were kind of trapped in the place that they lived. They had no access to a hospital, no medications or anything to help deal with this. And they were also very well aware that the Khmer Rouge were everywhere, watching and looking and spying, waiting. But I told you earlier that Hang is Dr. Hang, he was an OBGYN, and he had the knowledge and the know-how to get his wife and baby through this safely and for them to survive it. He could have done it, but if he utilized his knowledge as a doctor, then the Khmer Rouge would discover the truth, that he was, in fact, an educated, intellectual professional. And if that were to happen, they would kill him and his wife and his baby and anyone else related to him. Hang was helpless. And ultimately, Hoi died in labor. Hang was devastated. This was the love of his life. And the fact that he was a doctor and he could have saved her and the baby. It was like he was damned if he did and damned if he didn't. 
Hang carried the guilt of not being able to save his wife and child for the rest of his life. The photo that Hang had in that locket was the only worldly thing that he had left of her. Through everything that he went through with the Khmer Rouge, the three imprisonments, the torture, his escape, through it all, that photo was the only thing that he managed to successfully hide from them and he got it smuggled out of the country safely. Hang had that locket custom made with a photo placed inside of it. And it wasn't like a locket that you opened. It was gold and clear in the front, so the photo was displayed at all times. And he had it on a long chain, and it was secure, and it was something that he never, ever took off. Once the detectives understood the significance of that locket, it got them thinking that maybe this is why this robbery turned into a murder. Hang may have been willing to surrender his Rolex, but he may have fought to keep his gold chain since it contained the only thing that he had as a reminder of his late wife. Detectives opined that Hang resisted giving up the necklace and the locket, and this turned deadly. With this information about the locket, Officer Ed Yee went back to the neighborhoods in Chinatown, around the areas where he knew that the OLB were most active, and he started asking questions. And one former gang member provided him with the name of someone who may have had some information about the murder, and his name was Varik Sharik. So Ed tracked down Varik and brought him into the police station for an interview. And not surprisingly, Varik did not want to say anything. He didn't want to have anything to do with this out of fear of being killed for cooperating with the police. He didn't want to be anywhere near this investigation. But after a few interviews, along with Detective Garcia, they were able to slowly build a measure of trust with Varik. He finally opened up to Detective Garcia and Officer Yi. He revealed to them that he was in the alley the evening of the killings. He was a little ways up from where it happened, and he was getting into his car when he suddenly heard the sounds of gunshots. And then when he looked, he saw three men running through the alleyway, and they were headed in the direction where he was at. As they got closer, he could see that he knew who these guys were. He recognized them from the neighborhood. He knew that they were members of the OLB street gang. Varik said that when they saw him, they ordered him to let them in his car and to give them a ride to the home of another member of their gang. Because Varik knew that they were gang members, he felt like he had to do what they were telling him to do, as if he didn't have a choice. Even though he was providing the police investigators with this information, Varik was still not wanting to definitively point at any of the gang members. He didn't want to give names or identify them. But after several more interviews that lasted for many, many hours, they finally got Varik to crack, and he gave them the names of three members of the OLB. 
and their street names were Solo, Rambo, and Cloudy. So with that information, Detective Garcia got together some photos of known members of the OLB gang from the LAPD gang unit task force, and he showed Varik an array of pictures and asked him to identify the three guys. Right away, he chose the photos of three men, Tak Sun Tan, he was known as Rambo, Jason Chan, his name was Cloudy, and Indra Lim, and his street name was Solo. Varik was certain that those were the three. He didn't waffle. He didn't say that he was unsure. He was positive. And he also told the detectives the location of where he drove them to that night. The address turned out to be the home of another OLB gang member, and his name was Tolmei. He went by the street name T-Bone. So Officer Yi went over to T-Bone's house to see if he had a story that matched what Varik told them. They figured it would be better if Officer Yi went without Garcia because of the general mistrust of law enforcement and Ed's ability to connect and have a rapport with the people of the Cambodian community. When Ed knocked on the door, T-Bone's dad answered and he told Officer Yi that his son had been tipped off that the police were going to be looking for him and he up and left for the state of Washington. And he left very quickly. He grabbed a bag with a few items and he booked it. So they got the address of the family members that they had in Washington, which is where they were sure T-Bone was going to go and hide. Officer Yi was lucky that T-Bone's family was willing to cooperate the way that they did. So when they got that information, they contacted law enforcement up in Seattle and they explained to them what was going on, that they were looking for a possible witness in this murder. So the Seattle police put a couple of their officers on it and they were able to track down T-Bone and they took him into custody. Detective Garcia and Officer Yi were on the next flight up there to Seattle to see him and to question him and to hopefully find out if what Varik told them was the truth and if there was anything more that he knew about these three suspects and their involvement in Hang's murder. But it was not going to be easy by any stretch of the imagination. These gang members are really, really hard to break down and get them to open up. It took hours upon hours of the investigators talking to him in order to gain his trust to a point that they actually got T-Bone to break down into tears. And that is when he caved. T-Bone told Detective Garcia and Officer Yi that a couple of weeks before Hang was murdered, one of the suspects, Jason Chan, had a gun and T-Bone was able to identify a picture of a 9mm handgun as being the one that he had seen, which is consistent with the shell casings that were found at Hang's murder scene. T-Bone then went on to say that the evening of the murder, the three suspects had come to his house and said that they were going to go rob someone in order to try and get some money for some drugs. The three of them left, only to return a short while later, and when they did, they were knocking on the door with a type of knocking that was very intense and kind of panicky. It was the same three guys. T-Bone opened the door and they hurried past him and slammed it shut. One of them had a gun in his hand and exclaimed that they had just shot somebody. 
This is what Detective Garcia and Officer Yi had been waiting to hear for more than two months by then. So after they got this information from T-Bone, they did what they had done with Varik. They showed him an array of pictures of various OLB gang members and asked him to identify the three individuals that had shown up at his place that night. And T-Bone picked the same three individuals that Varik had. Solo, Ramble, and Cloudy, a.k.a. Tak Tan, Jason Chan, and Indra Lim. Detective Garcia now had his suspects. And they had two separate individuals, independent of one another, identifying the same three men. With that, the investigators had enough information to get arrest warrants for all three of them. And from there, it only took a few days to get all three of them into custody and booked on first-degree murder charges. The prosecution believed that as Hang was getting home from that dinner with his cousin, Tommy New, he parked his car and then was approached by Tan, Lim, and Chan. It is believed that they tried to take the gold chain from around his neck, most likely by way of just grabbing it and yanking it off of him. It is believed that as Hang was sitting in his car, these guys went in for the chain, but Hang tried to prevent them from taking it since it had so much sentimental value to him, even going so far as to offer them his Rolex. They believe that a very brief struggle for the necklace ensued, but neither party was willing to relent, so the person who was known to have had possession of the gun, as witnessed by T-Bone about two weeks earlier, opened fire when Hang refused to cooperate and he ended up shooting him twice, once in the leg and once in the chest, killing him. They then took the necklace with the locket and fled the scene. The reason why they didn't search the car any further and take the $3,000 that was in Hang's jacket pocket was because the police had information regarding another vehicle that was approaching the scene of the shooting unexpectedly that this vehicle had turned into the alleyway immediately after the shooting. And it was the investigators who came to believe that the appearance of this vehicle ended up spooking the three suspects, causing them to flee without having searched Tang's pockets or his car for anything more to steal. The murder trial for Tan, Lim, and Chan was set to begin in February of 1998 a little more than two years after the murder. The attorneys who were assigned to defend the three of them really felt like the case against their clients was quite flimsy, mainly because they didn't have the kinds of evidence that one would normally be looking for in a murder case. Investigators were never able to find the murder weapon. They were never able to recover the stolen Rolex or the gold chain and the locket with Hoy's picture in it. There was nothing in the way of fingerprints or DNA or anything linking any of the defendants to Hang's murder. And what made the case even more complex is that the judge decided to do something that was and is kind of unusual, but not totally unheard of. He was going to try all three defendants at the same time simultaneously in the same courtroom, but each defendant would have their own separate jury, which meant the prosecutors was going to have to try and convince 36 jurors 
to believe beyond a reasonable doubt that these three young men did what they were accused of doing. It was quite an unusual sight to see nearly half the courtroom being taken up by jurors. The case was also pretty much hinging on the word of two individuals with some gang ties, Varik and T-Bone. It was Varik who stated that he was in the alley at the time of the shooting, that the three defendants came running towards his car and ordered him to give them a ride and he ended up dropping them off at T-Bone's house. And T-Bone's statement was that the three defendants admitted to him that they had just shot someone that night. When Varik was called to testify at trial, he pulled a fast one and stated to the court that the police coerced him and pressured him into providing them with statements that were not true. So Varik was effectively recanting what he had told Detective Garcia and Officer Yee. And you know, it did take a lot of hours and a lot of pressure for them to get Varik to talk. He did not want to have anything to do with any of this. So for him to get up on the stand and to roll back on his statements was no surprise to anyone. So now the defense had a strong case to be able to raise the level of doubt in the minds of the jurors. But, you know, Varik made it pretty clear that he was afraid to be involved. He said it to the investigators and he said it to the court. So it didn't really make any sense for him to make false statements about the defendant's involvement if it wasn't really true because in doing so, he was only making things worse for himself. Then T-Bone got up on the stand and he suddenly has all this amnesia. He testified that he had no recollection of what he had said to the investigators and that he didn't remember anything that happened the evening that Hang was murdered. But you know, his recantation was not a surprise either. It's very difficult for these guys who are gang affiliated to sit there on the stand in the courtroom with the defendants who are their fellow gang members and to be face to face with them while having to rat them out. So their way out of that is to take back what they said and claim police coercion or that they can't remember or they were forced into making false statements. And while the testimonies of these guys was important, both of their statements were audio and video recorded, and both of those tapes were played for the juries. And Varik's recorded statement was particularly important because the jurors were able to see that Varik said what he said without really being under any kind of pressure or duress from the police. Nobody was screaming at him or threatening him. He wasn't being forced to say anything against his will. It appeared in the video that Varik was making his statements willingly and freely. He was saying in his own words what he witnessed in the alleyway the night of the murder and what happened immediately following the shooting. While T-Bone was on the stand, his videotape recorded statements were also played and he started looking pretty sheepish as it was played for the courtroom and he kind of started to slink down into his seat. If T-Bone could have had that floor open up and swallow him whole, he would have pretty much wanted that to have happened in that moment. It was on full display right there on the TV that he was the one who named the three suspects, his fellow gang members, and they were sitting right there 
watching the video along with the juries as T-Bone named every one of them and picked their pictures out of the lineup. T-Bone suddenly had this unexpected outburst on the stand. After that videotape of him snitching out his friends was played, he became very emotional and upset and he turned to the three defendants and he told them something along the lines of, to all my homies, I'm sorry. I just want to say I'm sorry. I know you want me dead because of what I did, but I'm sorry. However, all that outburst did was confirm to everyone who was looking on that he was lying to the court when he said that he didn't remember, and it corroborated the fact that the statements he did make implicating the defendants were true. And while T-Bone was probably making a plea for his life, more than anything, it played right into the prosecution's case and into the fact that they had the right men on trial. So the defense attorneys needed to make one last Hail Mary attempt to plant that reasonable doubt back into the minds of the jurors by making the contention that Hang's murder wasn't a robbery gone bad by some gangsters, but instead was a sophisticated political assassination carried out by sympathizers of the Khmer Rouge, that this case was bigger than the LAPD could handle, so they were going after these small-time petty criminals who were only 18 and 19 years old at the time of the murder in order to bring a quick and easy close to a case that had become so high profile in the media both here in the United States but internationally as well. It was very nerve-wracking when the case was handed over to the jury because it's so rare that you have to try and convince more than 12 people of a person's guilt. This time, they had to convince 36 people and all 36 of them had to be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt. And even more nerve-wracking was the fact that the juries took seven days to deliberate the fate of these three young men. In the end, all three juries found all three defendants guilty of first-degree murder. The verdict was announced on Thursday, April 16, 1998. And this verdict came down on what would be a very significant day for Cambodians around the world for a couple of reasons. You see, by 1998, the Khmer Rouge leader Pol Pot, his stronghold over Cambodia had diminished significantly, and he and his family were getting close to being captured or killed for his war crimes and his human rights violations. In June of 1997, Pol Pot, his family, along with some of their bodyguards, fled from their home, but they were forced to do so on foot. Pol Pot had just turned 72, and he was sick and frail, so his bodyguards actually had to carry him. Pol Pot was eventually apprehended and placed under house arrest for the time being. In a final interview Pol Pot gave to an American journalist, he said that his conscience is completely clear that there were mistakes made, but everything that he did do, he did for Cambodia. He denied that millions of innocent people were slaughtered, but he did say that he never ordered any children to be killed. The next month, Pol Pot was sentenced to life in prison. I'm not exactly clear on how all of that worked over there in Cambodia, but it seemed like it all went down pretty quickly. 
and less than a year later, on April 15, 1998, Pol Pot died in his sleep. His death was confirmed the following day, the same day that the three defendants were convicted of murdering Hang. A little more than a year after that, the Khmer Rouge no longer existed. April 16, 1998 was also the 23rd anniversary of the day that Pol Pot took over power in Cambodia. Learning of Pol Pot's death and the men who murdered her uncle being convicted on the same day was a very happy day for Sophia, who spoke to the media through her tears following the convictions. Indra Lim was sentenced to 26 years to life in prison. Tak Santan was sentenced to 56 years to life in prison because this was a second or third felony strike on his record. And Jason Tan, the one who had owned the gun and did the shooting, was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The only person still in a California prison today is Jason Chan. His life without parole sentence has stood as his appeals have been denied and are exhausted. Tax on Tan, however, won an appeal. Tan was convicted of robbery and first-degree murder, but after the Superior Court granted Tan's petition for resentencing, the court vacated his murder conviction and resentenced him for the robbery in 2020 and placed him on parole for three years. He was ordered to be released on time served. Now, what had happened was, is that some laws had changed in the intervening time that had to do with his role as an accomplice to the murder, and under the new laws, he could not be convicted of that murder. It was a little too much legal jargon for me to want to get into, but the bottom line was, Tan got his murder conviction vacated, and he was let out right away on three years of parole. But you know, and that was a great deal of good fortune for Tan, but he went on to appeal the three years of parole, insisting that it should only be two, and his appeal was granted yet again, and his parole was reduced to only two years. So as of today, Tan is walking free. The only person in jail, Jason Chan, Mr. Cloudy, he's 45 years old right now, and this will be his 25th year in prison, meaning he's been in prison longer than he was free. And he has got a long way to go yet. And the story isn't quite over. In November of 2009, nearly 14 years after Hang Noir was murdered, and more than 10 years since Pol Pot died, and the Khmer Rouge ceased to exist, one of the regime's former leaders came forward with an accusation that shocked the Cambodian community all over again. This former leader claimed that it was Pol Pot who ordered Hang's murder. And because there was still so much fear of the Khmer Rouge, the Cambodian community in Los Angeles began to wonder if Hang's murder wasn't a robbery gone bad after all. And still to this day, there are those who believe that Hang's murder was not gang-related. Regardless, the jury did what they did, and the investigators who were on the case back in 1996 remain confident that the right people were convicted. The irony of what happened to Dr. Hang Noir is not lost on any of us, I'm sure, but it is especially true for the Cambodian community. His death 
was a loss that is still mourned. For this man to have survived the atrocities of the genocide, to have made his way to freedom in the United States, for him to have given back to the community, to become a humanitarian and an award-winning actor, and for him to use that platform to continue to carry the message of what Cambodians went through so it would never be forgotten to only be cut down in some random act of street violence. It was a devastating loss that continues to reverberate through the Cambodian community to this day. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. Don't forget to join the Facebook group, which is where we discuss all the cases we cover on this show or any other crime-related stuff that's going on around us. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram. Consider supporting me and the puppies on Patreon. Please have a wonderful week, and as always, until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>